So I think I'm going to get started. And uh, there's two reasons, maybe three. Number one, um, I, I threw together a lot of slides for this. Number two, I want it to be interactive as much as possible. Uh, so I don't want you to be shy about asking questions and making comments. Uh, just, just raise your hand or just yell out something and that's fine. Um, and the third reason is that in exactly one hour, I have to zoom to the airport or I'm going to be in Washington for one more day. <laughs> so. Okay. So there's my little disclosure thingy which has nothing to do with this talk. And these are your learning objectives, but you'll learn what you're going to learn when you learn it. <laughs> and this is what we're going to talk about. Liver injury, hepatic fibrosis and steatosis, complications of cirrhosis, when to refer to transplant, and what to manage before the hepatologist takes over. So with, with that as the outline, I'm a hepatologist. Um, I've spent uh, much of the last 30-ish, almost 30 years, uh, focused on liver disease in HIV-infected patients. Um, but I also have been the medical director of a transplant program. And uh, so the, the goal of this workshop is to talk to you about if you're going to manage patients with hep C or hep B, what do you need to know about liver disease to be able to do that effectively? So let's start with just some background. Is there a way to turn the lights down in the front here a little bit? Thank you, without putting everyone to sleep. Maybe, while well, she works on that. So, so the key is fibrosis in the liver. Um, we all get excited about liver enzymes, and we're going to talk about liver enzymes. But at the end of the day, uh, concern in the liver is primarily about fibrosis. And there's many things that cause fibrosis. Um, hepatitis viruses, obviously. Uh, fat in the liver when NASH is present, but not necessarily all fat in the liver. So there are lots of patients that have fat, but fat doesn't mean injury, and it's only when you have injury you have NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Alcohol, which also causes fat in the liver and an inflammatory reaction. Um, inherited metabolic disorders. There's a variety of those. Uh, cumulatively, about 10% of the U.S. population has a gene for a, a defect in the liver that causes liver injury. Um, and we always need to think about those things as cofactors. Various drugs are toxic to the liver. Um, excess vitamin A, uh, that directly causes the stellate cells of the liver, the cells that specifically make collagen or scar to make more. And so one of the things that always pains me is when someone comes in with liver disease and they're on megadose vitamins, including vitamin A. Uh, there's cholestatic disorders, those that affect bile flow, and various immune disorders, uh, autoimmune hepatitis, for example. Uh, that can cause fibrosis. So in the world of a hepatologist, we define things in basically two arms and then something in the middle. Diseases are mainly hepatocellular, meaning there is hepatocyte injury. And we define that by increases in ALT and AST, the serum transaminases. Or it's cholestatic, and cholestatic diseases are mainly elevations in ALKFOS and then later bilirubin. GGT, which sounds a lot like ALT and AST, is not a marker of injury. It's a marker of cholestasis. 
So people often mix that up, and it's not uncommon that I get consults saying patient has hepatitis because their GGT is 700, and often that's due to a drug or sometimes alcohol. Um, and then there's some that are just really confusing and give a mixed picture. Now, you might say, oh, but a patient with acute viral hepatitis um, may be jaundiced, may have a high billy and alkfos. How could that be? And the answer is that, that they start with a hepatocellular injury, transaminases go up, and then the liver cells regenerate. They regenerate very quickly, but they don't make the connections to the bile ducts. The smallest level of bile duct is called a bile canaliculus. They don't reconnect, sometimes for weeks to months. So injury, new hepatocyte replacing the damaged hepatocyte, the new liver cell starts to do its thing, and one of the things it does is it begins to make bile acids and bilirubin, except it hasn't yet tied itself to the pipe, the bile canaliculus, that carries the bile away. And so those bile acids build up in the hepatocyte, which cause an increase in alkaline phosphatase and bilirubin and GGT, and we call that post-hepatitic cholestasis. So the injury is a hepatocellular injury. It's followed by a post-hepatitic cholestasis. And again, sometimes depending on where you see a patient in the progress of their disease, it's hard to sort that out. You may think you're dealing with a patient with a cholestatic disease, and that's why it's so important to try and go back to where did it all start and what was the pattern at that time. Yeah. Yes. So the question, I'll, I'll repeat it, is if, if you see that, is that an indication that the patient is indeed recovering? And the answer is generally yes, that, uh, that there is an effort to continue to process bile acids and bilirubin by regenerating hepatocytes. And we sometimes see this in, it's funny, diseases like hepatitis A uh, can have a very prolonged post-hepatitic cholestasis. Many reports of, of people remaining jaundiced for eight months after an acute injury process. We also distinguish between that idea of acute and chronic, and that's rather arbitrary. Um, we now say that, that if you have an acute episode, acute hepatitis, and it resolves within six months, then it was an acute injury. But if it lasts longer than six months, it's a chronic injury. And again, it's totally arbitrary based upon the statistical odds of something clearing or not clearing. A patient that gets acute hep C, 80% of them will clear by about four to five months. So therefore, if there's still disease virus present at six months, we say it has gone to a chronic disease state. It may still be a resolving acute and just taking a little bit longer, but we arbitrarily draw a line. And that line is important because many of our treatment uh, decisions and even decisions about, about determining fibrosis are based upon whether something is acute or chronic. So again, arbitrary line, but you have to draw a line someplace. Now, most of you have heard about toxicity grades, particularly if you've ever done any work with a group like the ACTG. Um, because when you do a clinical research study, you're constantly being asked to grade. There's a grade for this, and it comes back from, a, from the laboratory with some sort of a grade, and you're supposed to comment on causality or association. It's a probably due to the drug, not due to the drug. The DADES grading arose from the development of the ACTG 
clinical trials, actually, because there needed to be a mechanism, a way to define levels of injury. And in most of those early trials, this is going back into the mid-90s, um, there was sort of a feeling that if something achieved a grade three or four, it was significant and the drug should be stopped if it was thought to be a causality-related issue. That was sort of, again, arbitrary decision-making in the setting of, uh, of an acute drug reaction or a putative acute drug reaction. And it doesn't make a lot of sense for chronic liver disease because, in fact, most chronic liver disease is level one. Patients with chronic hep C, chronic hep B, patients with, uh, with autoimmune hepatitis, most of the time they live in this level. And unfortunately, particularly in the infectious disease world, these DADES criteria have worked against people thinking about and worrying about liver disease. I cannot tell you in my career how many times I've heard HIV providers say, oh, well, you know, it was like an ALT of 58. Therefore, it's not a problem. That's like a grade one level. It's not an issue. Those are the patients that with a smoldering disease have ongoing cell turnover and development of fibrosis, scarring, and injury. Those are the ones at greatest risk. You should also know if you're talking about liver disease, about High's rule. Um, so High is High Zimmerman. He was one of my mentors um, and one of the fathers of the field of hepatology. And specifically, he was the guy that worked on drug toxicity and wrote the textbook of drug toxicity. Um, and uh, he made an observation 25 years ago that, uh, that, said, that said that a bilirubin greater than three and an AST greater than 20 times normal in the setting of a drug being given is a very high risk of chance of death from fulminant hepatic failure or need for transplantation. And the FDA adopted that as High's rule. So in honor of him, uh, it became a de facto rule that it, it's used now across all drug development in, in uh, all parts of the FDA. So people might say, oh, this patient meets High's law and you should be concerned. That's a reason to get a patient to a hepatologist. And it has been validated in a prospective study just to see if High's law wasn't something that High just made up in his head, which he did. But, but it was based upon years and years of experience. There's also something called the hypersensitivity rule. Some drugs causing toxicity lead to an eosinophilic hypersensitivity, drugs like abacavir and nevirapine. And so we have a hypersensitivity rule that says in the setting of a use of a drug like that, an ALT two times normal and hypereosinophilia defines a hypersensitivity or immune-mediated liver injury reaction. The other thing, I mentioned ALT and how often people ignore low levels of ALT, but the real key is, is shown on this slide. It wasn't back until early 2000 that, that we really fully realized that everything your lab tells you about normal values is wrong. The lab is not your friend. And that, that if you look for disease, if you biopsy a person and look for damage to hepatocytes with inflammation, regardless of the disease source, you find it in men when the ALT is greater than 30 and for women when the ALT is greater than 19. Doesn't matter that your lab says, oh, normal value of ALT is 5 to 45. If your patient is a woman and living at 42, she is 
losing liver cells at twice the rate of normal. That is an injury. That turnover is a smoldering disease process, and it deserves investigation. And if you look hard enough, you will almost always find a liver disease present. Yeah. The question is, why are labs resistant to changing their thresholds? And uh, the answer is two or three things. One, that people do what people do, that pathologists exist under a set of guidelines created by CAP and CLIA, and CAP and CLIA guidelines state how to test to determine normal ranges, and they use a statistical measure of a putatively healthy population. Um, so in my institution, the laboratory, we have something called executive physical. So if you're a big executive in P&G, which has its international headquarters in Cincinnati, where I'm from, um, you get an executive physical. And if you get an executive physical, you're considered healthy because you must be a healthy executive, not, not an overweight guy who visits prostitutes in Las Vegas and, uh, and, and uh, drinks vodka by the gallon. You must be healthy because you're an executive. And therefore, that person becomes one of the 100 people a year that's tested to determine the normal range. And uh, then they use a statistical measure with a, with a cutoff that's based upon the mean and two and a half standard deviations from the mean. That's an arbitrary measure of normality that gives you a bell curve, but it does not define the presence of disease. In reviewing this, I became aware that as the population is getting fatter, ALTs are going ALTs up. ALTs are going up. And that is a disease because fat-laden hepatocytes turn over at a faster rate, and therefore you're actually killing more liver cells, and a proportion of those people, about a third, will develop fibrosis, which is the response to that increased cell turnover. In fact, so I did the first study, national study of ALT in 1980 and 81, and we found significantly higher rates in historically heavier populations like in Tucson, Arizona, as compared to uh, Burlington, Vermont. And it wasn't, the question that was asked was, are there truly different ranges of normal? Or is there simply more disease of one type or another in different places? And body weight was the most significant factor in Tucson, Arizona, compared to Burlington, Vermont. <coughs> Insulin resistance is the effect of having those fat-laden hepatocytes. So insulin resistance is a marker. It is not per se, the injury. When you get a fat-laden hepatocyte, you develop insulin resistance. People who have insulin resistance are at greater risk of having NASH versus NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver. So these things are all interrelated, but the insulin resistance is just a marker, not the cause. Okay. So that's usually the starting place. And hopefully, one of the first things you've learned here is think about your patient's <laughs> serum transaminase levels, and particularly the ALT. Okay, hepatic fibrosis. So that's the next, next thing we need to talk about. So fibrosis in the liver, the type of injury determines the pattern. For most diseases, it is very homogeneous. So people often say, well, how do you know that the left half of the liver is the same as the right half of the liver? Um, because except for some very unique circumstances, they just are. Something that affects one part of the liver affects the other part. Um, inflammation is transient. Fibrosis is fixed. That was sort of the mantra of hepatology until just the last few years. We've now come to realize that, that 
Fibrosis arrives in most patients very slowly. It could be a 20, 30, 40 year process. And if you take away the inciting factor, there could be remodeling and loss of fibrosis. And again, it might be as long as a 20, 30, 40 year process. Cirrhosis is a histologic diagnosis. It is not actually a clinical diagnosis. And I think that that, that is number two after what is a normal transaminase as possibly the, the most important concepts you should take away from here. Um, cirrhosis is a finding on a liver biopsy. And we have other ways of s determining if a patient might have that by association, but, but you know, if you walk through the woods and you find a pile of bear poop, you can probably guess with a high degree of accuracy that there's a bear someplace around, right? So we have indirect measures, but, but they're not the same as seeing the bear. That's true of cirrhosis. You need to actually look at the liver to know that cirrhosis is present. This graphically shows stages of fibrosis. We're going to look at this on real slides, so I'm not going to go through each of these stages. What I want you to see is that, that when people talk about stages of liver disease, it's not enough to just say a stage. You need to know what system they're using. So Ishak, who was also one of my mentors and was located here in Washington, D.C. until his death, created the Ishak system and also the Nodell system, which was one of his students, um, to score liver biopsies. And that that is different than the Medivir, which is the European system of staging. You see how these numbers don't line up. And if you're in the Midwest and you were a student of, of Dr. Ludwig at the Mayo Clinic, you have a totally different grading system that also doesn't line up. So when you talk about stages, you need to know what stage you're talking about. And that's important as people communicate with each other about where is this patient in their disease process. Okay, here are four liver biopsies. This is a normal biopsy. And a normal biopsy has portal areas, central veins. There's a vague sense of structure here. That's a liver lobule. The unit of structure, the neighborhood of the liver is called a liver lobule. And there's hundreds of thousands of liver lobules in a person's liver, cumulatively made up of millions and millions of hepatocytes and other things. Pink is good on an H&E stain or a trichrome stain. When you start to see blue, you're seeing fibrosis and inflammation, depending upon which stain it is. This would be a Medivir 1, um, leading to an Ishak 2, uh, not quite a Medivir 2. This is a Medivir 3, an Ishak 4, what we call bridging fibrosis, bridges between those portal areas. This right here is cirrhosis. A liver lobule totally surrounded by scar is cirrhosis. And cirrhosis is a lot like pregnancy. You are or you aren't. You're not sort of. <laughs> So this person is cirrhotic. As you move from this stage to this stage to this stage, your body begins to respond to alterations of blood flow through the liver that result in other physiologic changes that culminate in what we call end-stage liver disease. So it is a progressive process. It is not draw a line that this patient will have end-stage liver disease and this one has no sign of end-stage liver disease, but a progressive thing. And, 
And there is some variability in individuals' presentation. And we'll talk about why that is in a couple of more minutes. Liver biopsy is the gold standard. People call it often tarnished gold standards. And this is where I like to poke my friend Dave Thomas at Johns Hopkins, who um, has actually spoken about and written a paper saying liver biopsy is not a gold standard. And the reason is at liver, they don't do, at Johns Hopkins, they don't do liver biopsies themselves. They send them off to their radiologist. The radiologist gets a piece of tissue and whatever it is, that's what they read. This is the size of the tissue they often get. So if you were a pathologist or a hepatologist looking at this, you wouldn't see a complete nodule and you would grade this as a stage three, the same as this over here. You would undercall it and you'd be wrong because that patient does have cirrhosis, but you missed it. You need to get a sufficient piece, a three centimeter piece of liver with a sufficiently wide gauge needle to be able to definitively make that diagnosis. And if you do it wrong, you get the wrong answer frequently. Yeah. because they don't know how and they don't want to learn how to do biopsies. They send it to the radiologist who gets paid by providing any tissue and who hasn't looked through a microscope at what they're getting since medical school. So they say it's good enough. And it's not good enough. It's like, it's like if you sent a patient that you thought had a pneumothorax to radiology and and the patient sat there because they were having trouble breathing and pain and bent over like this when they took the picture and the radiologist still took the picture and sent it up to you, you'd say, I can't read that. It's, it's a bad picture. It shouldn't have been done like that. And you'd send the patient back and say, get me a good x-ray. But because a liver biopsy is invasive, no one ever sends the patient back to get another liver biopsy. And so... They, at Hopkins, they got hundreds of liver biopsies that were inadequate, and then they wrote papers about them. That's what happened. And I'm picking on Dave, but he's a very good friend of mine, so he, he knows that I pick on him. This is actually from a study that I was involved with, and so were they. And uh, this is my liver biopsy. This is a liver biopsy. It's long, but you see how thin it is. Not quite as good, but still a lot of tissue to look at. And this is a bad biopsy. They're all liver biopsies, but just having a liver biopsy doesn't mean that it's a good one. And this basically says what I just said. How good is it? Well, it never overstages disease. If you're, if you're a three, you're at least a three, you could be a four, but you're not a two. So in terms of accuracy of a test, most tests are two-sided. There could be an error, undercall, overcall. But if you see what you see, you know, if you see the bear in the woods, there is a bear in the woods. It's not, there might be a bear in the woods. <laughs> and this just says that a three centimeter biopsy is indeed extremely accurate in large studies. Yeah. So my question is, if there's so many problems getting a good biopsy, uh -huh. do some of the other... It, I'll repeat it if you... If, if there's so many difficulties getting a good quality biopsy, <laughs> then would some of the surrogate tests that they have now, would they offer as much... They... Uh, as, sure, you know, a non-invasive as much, as much a non-invasive test can be as good as a bad biopsy. <laughs> yes, but I don't know if that's good or not. Yes. Mostly, that's that's what I was saying before that uh, that the liver is mostly homogeneous in its response as long as you have enough tissue to look at. There is some small variation, 
but for most diseases, it's fairly uniform, certainly over three centimeter segment, which contains at least 11 portal areas. So what do you think about that um, paper that showed that the APRI was a better indicator of mortality than liver biopsy? Was that because it was based on poor liver biopsies or because and they were based on good biopsies no, but that, that finding is valid? Two, two or three reasons. So the, the question is about APRI, which we'll talk about in a moment, but uh, it's a non-invasive test using common markers. If you use common markers that indicate end-stage liver disease is already there because that's what they're based on, and I'll show you why that is, then, then you basically say patients who have advanced liver disease have advanced liver disease. That's got to be better than anything, right? It's, again, seeing the bear in the woods. If you've already progressed beyond the stage where a cirrhotic liver is causing effects, then that is highly predictive of the fact that there's a cirrhotic liver. So this is a concordance study for biopsies. Uh, this was part of the HALT-C study, which was an extremely large, extremely well-done NIH-funded study looking at suppressive therapy for hep C before we had effective treatments. And it basically shows that uh, that good pathologists with good samples agree with each other and are essentially always right. <laughs> now, many of us have moved into the era of using transient elastography. Transient elastography involves using a probe that sends out a sound wave that shakes the liver. If you've ever made jello the old-fashioned way, you mix it up in a bowl, you put it in your refrigerator. If you tap the side of the bowl, it gives a pleasing jiggle. If you leave it uncovered in the refrigerator for two days, the water evaporates out of it. It shrinks a little. It pulls away from the walls. And if you tap the side, it doesn't jiggle. And if you eat it, it tastes kind of like eating rubber. Anyone have that experience? Okay. <laughs> the liver is just like that, and that is the principle behind transient elastography. You send out a pulse sound wave, it shakes the liver, the rebound sound waves that come from that shake actually can be used, the velocity of the rebound determines the stiffness of the liver. You relate the stiffness of the liver to the amount of fibrosis. The more fibrosis, the the stiffer the liver is, stiffer livers have more scar. Therefore, you can say at some arbitrary cutoffs that a patient might or might not have cirrhosis. We measure that stiffness in terms of kilopascals, and we set lines which are not rigid. They're very arbitrary, but at some level, and, and more as you go up, you have cirrhosis. And if you're up at a 16 kilopascals, you almost always have cirrhosis. And if you are way down at four and five, you have essentially a liver with no fibrosis. And everything in the middle is a little bit squishy and overlapping. So you can use this with pretty good degree of confidence in determining who has cirrhosis, and even those with more significant fibrosis by setting cutoffs in the 9, 9.5 range. How many of you have access to FibroScan? Most of you. Okay. You need to know it's not definitive. It's subject to some errors. Fat causes problems in FibroScan. Inflammation causes problems in FibroScan. If you have a patient whose ALTs with hep C are running 200, that patient has high inflammatory activity, and the inflammatory them cells themselves make the liver stiffer. So you may say, oh, they're cirrhotic. And then if you did cure them of their hep C, and four months later did another FibroScan, you'd see them at, at 9.2, and you'd say, oh, look. They're not cirrhotic anymore. No, you just got rid of the inflammation. That's the difference.
We also have MRI elastography. Do any of you have access to that that you know of? One. This is a really good technique and in most studies has an incredible correlation uh, with, with actual well-done liver biopsies. Um, the trouble is that in my institution, a liver biopsy costs about $2,500. Um, an MRI costs about $4,000. So even though it's non-invasive, we tend to not use it except in very special circumstances. This is what we tend to use in, say, a patient with hemophilia that we don't want to give $20,000 worth of clotting factors to to get them ready for a biopsy. So um, this is a technique that, if you have it, is extremely reliable, and it may become even more important as we increase our interest in fat because you can use a proton density fraction on MRI that is as accurate also as liver biopsy in predicting fat content. And this just shows you the curve characteristics, which I won't dwell on. There's also proprietary non-invasive tests, uh, FibroSure and FibroTest. This is from the original paper of FibroTest, which became FibroSure in the U.S. Have any of you used that? Get most of you from, you get it usually from LabCorp. Um, it's pretty good in diagnosing patients with cirrhosis or very mild disease. There's tremendous overlap in the middle. And so it's not that good except at the extremes. If you want to improve the quality of the test in diagnosing cirrhosis, you use higher cutoff levels. So on the manufacturers, when you get the report, it says greater than 0.72 is cirrhosis. If you bump that up to 0.8, you're almost always right. But the risk is you, you may miss some cases, but if it's greater than 0.8, Cirrhosis is virtually always present. Yes. So is this a good marker for HIV patients? So it it is an okay marker. It is not a great marker. If you go in with the concept that the reason I need to know the stage is to make clinical decisions, treat this patient now versus treat this patient later, begin to think about screening this patient for advanced liver disease things, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes or not, then the answer is yes, certainly better than not doing anything. It doesn't give you a definitive answer, but if in your head, if you think about it as not, again, absolute cutoffs, but what is the clinical picture of this patient? And if I don't know for sure, should I err on the side of doing more for the screening and surveillance of that patient? Then it's fine. Yeah. So there is no test at this point that you should be using to look for improvement in a successfully treated hep C patient. In fact, the Europeans went crazy because they had FibroScan first, and there's like, like 400 papers in the literature about improvements following treatment of hep C, improvements in fibrosis. And now we're learning that like none of those are improvements in fibrosis. They're just improvements in inflammation. So, and there's no reason to do it because there's nothing else you would do next regardless of what that number is. You made a decision to treat. You need to decide at usually before you treat are you going to treat that patient as someone that has advanced liver disease or not, which is the subject of much of the rest of this? And 
Beyond that, there's nothing else you need to do. So there's no reason to continue to get those. And these are not cheap. These tests are like $300 a piece. So I wouldn't rush to get that. The easiest one you can get is Fib4. And there was a question about APRI. Uh, Fib4's test characteristics among the com just routine lab tests are actually a little better than APRI, so I, didn't, I do not recommend use of APRI. I think if you have nothing else at hand, you can always use Fib4. It uses age, platelet count, AST, and ALT, puts it into a formula, but you don't need to know the formula because you can get it on your smartphone. Just put in Fib4 calculator, put in those numbers, and then you get an interpretation. And the interpretation is this. Less than 1.5 is an F0 to F1. Greater than 3.25 is F3 or F4. And you'll be right 65% of the time. That is, using common tests, the best available result that you can get. So it's not great. Now, in, in answer to the question about APRI or FIB4 before, everything is based on this platelet count. And, and as you'll see, platelet count is your marker of portal hypertension. Portal hypertension arises from a scarred liver. Cirrhotic livers are more scarred than an F3 or an F2 liver. So as a secondary effect, drop in platelet count is your biggest effect. Now, by the way, for those that were interested in following, though I just told you not to, AST and ALT normalize completely in patients that are treated. That does not mean that, that on the day they normalize, their fibrosis went away. This, these formulas actually are worthless as soon as you treat the patient because they were all validated in those patients. Yeah. Super question. So the answer is yes. These were validated in adults who were generally effect, infected in adulthood. And if you were infected at childhood, uh, this is the flaw of our pediatrician colleagues because I, I have quite literally the best pediatric hepatology program in the world across the street from me. And they still are constantly surprised when they send me 17-year-olds and I evaluate them in their cirrhotic because they said they looked fine. Well, they looked fine, but they were having fibrosis for the last 17 years and you thought they were fine. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a problem. There's an error in that. Um, and the other problem is on the other side, as you get into an aging population, it looks like everyone gets more fibrosis. If you get up into the 80s, you'd be surprised how many people meet those criteria. They don't all have cirrhosis. This shows you where the errors are. This is, this is a study looking at uh, its, its FIB4 FibroScan and uh, FibroTest actually. Uh, looking at the areas where you are likely to misclassify compared to a liver biopsy, and it's those middle stages. You're pretty good down at the F4s and at the F0s, but in the middle, not so good. Fibrosis progression is not the same in everyone, and you all sort of intrinsically know this. If you cut yourself... Some people cut themselves, heal, scar goes away, and you don't see any scar. Some people get a big scar. Some people get an exuberant scar with keloid. People heal differently. In response to injury, they form scar at different rates. And if you look at a population of hep C patients, all who start at the same place, some progress through various stages quickly, and some 
at least in the course of as long as a 50-year period, may have very, very modest progression, which is why we evaluate patients and look for prognostic factors that might tell us. Now, HIV is an important factor in prediction of a faster rate, particularly untreated HIV. And that was shown in uh, Mark Solkowski's study at Johns Hopkins, where they took patients that uh, had hep C, low stage disease, and rebiopsied them in an average, a median of 2.84 time, uh, almost three years apart, and 25% uh, progressed two or more metavir stages. So you can have rapid progression in a subset of people. Just so you know, this is what a fatty liver looks like. This is fat-laden liver, and this person may have very mildly increased transaminases because of increased cell turnover, and they may have mildly increased alkaline phosphatase, but they don't have severe liver disease. This person, different pattern of injury, we call this chicken wire fibrosis, and uh, lots of ballooning cells, lots of inflammatory cells, and uh, this is NASH. This is non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So this is why we can't just say the fat in the liver is by itself a disease either. It's only the patients that have this type of picture that have progressive liver disease that leads to cirrhosis. Okay, there are two clocks in liver disease. There is the clock that takes you from start of injury, say infection with hep C, to being cirrhotic. And then once you're cirrhotic, there is the clock that takes you from cirrhotic to decompensated cirrhosis or development of liver cancer. Once you're cirrhotic, about 5% per year will decompensate. Once you're cirrhotic, about 1% to 2% per year will develop liver cancer. So patients often say, what's my prognosis, doc? And the answer is, if we just found that you're cirrhotic and you're not decompensated, then in about 10 years, 30 to 40% will be decompensated. And the remainder will not. But at 20 years, almost all will be decompensated. What is decompensation? So this is decompensation. Development of ascites, which itself can be complicated by hepatorenal syndrome, hepatic hydrothorax, or SPP. Hepatic encephalopathy, bleeding varices, or coagulopathy defined as a PT greater than three seconds over control, or an INR, and this gets a little hairy and controversial for reasons I'm not going to take the time to go into, greater than someplace between 1.5 and 1.7. If you have though any of those things, any one of those things, you have decompensated liver disease. Yes. Everyone hear that? SBP is spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to run a little more quickly through this, but it's, it's about these things. What do you need to know? How do you get started? So most of you have at some point heard about child pew staging, child turco pew, uh, the child score. We don't use that very much anymore. Um, it was a prognostic score that was used mainly for people undergoing shunt surgery. That's how it was originally validated. Then it became the way we chose transplant patients, but it wasn't very good. And it was replaced by the MELD score. The MELD score is the model for end-stage liver disease. It uses bilirubin creatinine INR primarily. Um, 
without complicating things. That's what you need to know right now. There is a melt sodium score as well. Um, and you use it to predict mortality and time to transplant. And it's, it's a more effective model than the use of the child score as to what's going to happen in terms of survival. So here's an example. Not terrible numbers. You may have patients like this. Creatinine's 1.6, Billy's 1.4, INR is 1.6. If you had that patient sitting in your office today and they said, Doc, what's my prognosis? What would you tell them? Hmm? You don't like it. Okay. So you'd say, I don't like the INR. And your response, what would you do with that? Putting you on the spot here. Phone a friend. Phone a friend. Okay. So if we plug that into the MELD calculator, which again you have on your smartphone, it's a MELD of 17. And a MELD of 17 has nearly a 20% three-month mortality. Okay? So that is a serious patient. A MELD greater than 10 should be evaluated in a transplant center. A MELD greater than 15 is listable for transplant. And we sometimes transplant people at MELDs of 17 and 18. Not as often as we used to because organ availability is a big problem, but we used to do that very routinely. <laughs> yes, there's about, the, unfortunately it's decreased, but there's about 14 centers in the country that are still transplanting HIV positive patients, and we are one of them in Cincinnati. So when do you refer for liver transplantation? First sign of hepatic decompensation, keeping in mind that it could take up to two months to get a patient into a transplant center. Any ascites, encephalopathy or variceal bleeding, a MELD greater than 10, or anything that suggests HCC, that's when you make the call. Knowing, again, that it may take you two months and so the rest of what I have to say in the next 10 minutes are going to be about what do you do between the moment you see that and that patient gets seen by a transplant center. So everything you need to know about liver disease actually is derived from this picture. The splanchnic circulation is an isolated circulation. It is made up of three vessels, the superior mesenteric, the inferior mesenteric veins, and the splenic vein. They, at, they come together, and when they're together, they form the portal vein. The portal vein flows into your liver. 70% of blood flow in the liver is from the portal vein. I like to keep things simple. If this was a creek and you put a dam here, things would happen, right? Fibrosis in the liver is a dam. The first thing that happens if you created a dam in a creek is you form a reservoir. The spleen is your reservoir. The spleen gets bigger. The spleen is the dumbest organ in the body. The bigger it is, the better it works. What is the job of the spleen? The spleen takes out senescent cells. A bigger spleen takes out less senescent cells. The spleen grows, platelet count goes down, white count goes down, CD4 count goes down, and red count goes down, though it's not seen as much. That is why 
those tests that include platelets tell you that you already have portal hypertension. High blood pressure, high pressure here because of a blockage makes the spleen big. Platelets go down. The platelets are the marker of the secondary effect. Neoangiogenesis, because a stream has to be clogged forever, you have to find a path back to the main channel. Neoangiogenesis creates those paths. And those paths become part of the disease process. Like this. This is a patient, and you see several things. He's got the classic wasting of end-stage liver disease, cachectic arms, sarcopenia, massive abdomen. His liver has utilized a recanalization of the umbilical vein to drive a path to reduce the pressure. Opening up these vessels on the surface, which we call the caput medusae, which are returning blood into the general circulation. He's filled with ascites. He's filled with ascites because there's no return reabsorption of water, which involves both lymphatic channels and blood vessels in the intestines and in the peritoneal surface, all of which drain into the liver. Blood flow is being limited back into the liver. And low albumin creates an oncotic pressure gradient that draws fluid back in. But with low albumin, you end up with no oncotic pressure or less oncotic pressure, and so fluid cannot be reabsorbed into small capillaries. He's formed an umbilical hernia because that's the weakest place in the abdominal wall. And he's obviously filled with ascites. He's got 20, 30 liters of ascites in there. What do you do? The first time you see a patient with ascites, you tap him. Every time such a patient is admitted to the hospital, you tap him or her. And with all changes in that patient's status, you tap them. Why? Because you cannot diagnose SBP without doing a tap. I hear all the time, I don't know how to tap. I can't tap. I have to send the patient to CT for a tap, which is one of the greatest rackets of your radiology colleagues. They charge $2,000 a tap. This is a woodblock from the 1400s. This is a bamboo straw. They were doing taps then. We can do them today, ourselves. You do not need to send them to interventional radiology. Now, you do need to learn how to do it so you don't cause a problem, but it's not rocket science. What else do you do? You start diuretics, typically spironolactone and Lasix. The key agent is spironolactone, not the Lasix. This is not congestive heart failure. The ratio is typically 50 to 20. Once you do that, you wait two weeks before you make a change. Then you double the dose, 140. Then you wait two weeks, 280. It's not refractory ascites till the patient starts to go into renal failure. Doesn't once a day, typically, unless the pill burden is so great. Doesn't matter. Preferably in the morning, so the patient doesn't not up all night peeing. Sodium restriction, people forget that. Two grams of sodium a day. And large volume paracentesis until you get the fluid down and the diuretics take effect and get it under control. In patients that truly have refractory ascites and who meet other criteria, we do a TIPS, a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt. And those patients become liver transplant candidates if they're liver transplant candidates. Hepatic hydrothorax. I was going to present to you a case, but in the interest of time, I'm just going to say that 
This is not a patient with a power demonic effusion. <laughs> a patient with right-sided ascites in the setting of known liver disease is always a hepatic hydrothorax until proven otherwise. Because breaks above the dome of the liver create, there's a negative pressure on breathing. It pulls fluid, acidic fluid. This is acidic fluid filling his right lung going into the pleural space. You never, ever, ever, ever put in a chest tube. Even when your surgical colleague says, oh, this patient's been in twice in three weeks for taps, we should put in a chest tube. Putting in a chest tube is a death sentence. Just don't do it. Esophageal varices. This is one of the things that results from increased portal pressure. Recanalization of the coronary vein leads to development of esophageal varices. Varices are important because 35 to 80% of cirrhotics have them, 25 to 40% bleed. If they bleed, 30 to 60% die at the first bleed. This is a big deal. That's why we surveil patients. That's why we look for it before they bleed, not wait to see if they bleed. So we do EGD in all cirrhotic patients, which gets back to why do you need to know if a patient has cirrhosis? You need to know so you can enroll them in surveillance. EGD, no varices, you repeat it in three years. Small varices, all those patients get treated with non-selective beta blockers. There's only two on the market in the U.S., natalol and propranolol. We use natalol in most patients. Atenolol and metoprolol don't do it because they're cardioselective. Medium and large varices, a combination of things including band ligation. Asterixis, every patient with cirrhosis, every visit, put their hand out, look for the flapping of asterixis. If they have it, they get lactulose and rifaximin. 550 milligrams twice a day of rifaximin reduces risk of hospitalization for hepatic encephalopathy. There's also, before they get to frank asterixis, these patients have neuropsychiatric and cognitive changes. They have increased automobile accidents. If someone in the family notices that they are beginning to be... I, occasionally confused, you need to pull that person out of driving. And that's really hard because the patients are actually disinhibited. And my classic patient is the, uh, the well-to-do investment banker who, who, as soon as he became disinhibited, he went out and bought a new Jaguar, which he said, oh, I can run it at 110 miles an hour. And uh, he did until he hit a tree. <laughs> HCC surveillance, we already talked about this in the last session. Every six months, it is subjective. Experience matters. You need to know who's doing that for you. So in summary, HCV is also a liver disease. You need to always ask in every patient you see, not just say, oh, it's hep C, I'm going to treat the hep C. Is advanced fibrosis present? If it is, start surveillance for varices, ascites, hepatocellular carcinoma, Contact the hepatologist early when there's any sign of decompensation present. It is important to know that hepatologist and gastroenterologist are not interchangeable words. Almost all hepatologists are gastroenterologists. Not all gastroenterologists are hepatologists. Until a few years ago, people could have had as little as one month of training in liver disease and a three-year fellowship in GI and spent most of their days learning to pluck polyps. So don't assume that sending a patient to a gastroenterologist is going to necessarily provide the correct management for your patient. You need to find someone who has a specific interest or training 
And there are some. I mean, my program is a liver-heavy program. A third of the faculty in Cincinnati, for better or worse, are hepatologists. So our fellows get a lot of hepatology in what they do. They get about almost a year's worth of hepatology. They are fine going out and managing most of these things. But that is not true of the other four programs in Ohio. So you need to know kind of where has your person come from? How were they trained? What can they handle? What are they comfortable with? Don't forget to manage the complications. Don't, don't just say, oh, the patient has ascites or had a variceal bleed. I sent them to transplant and I'm done with them because you may not be done, especially if there are months in between. And I think that's it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, questions? I say cure, but I don't say it with a single one because commercial laboratories testing of HCV RNA is still wrong between 5 and 10% of the time for a variety of reasons. But panels, blind panels have shown there's still a relatively high error rate. And so we, we at 12 weeks, we check a patient and we say, you've achieved SVR and we see them back sometime between then and the end of a year later, and at a second negative, we say, congratulations, you're cured. Yes. Yes. Subset. Yes, correct. If their liver enzymes are elevated and there's no other clear etiology, so ALTs in 50s, 60s, evidence of fatty liver, if you can get a fibroscan, I would say the ones that have any evidence of fibrosis, you should send for a biopsy. Um, for the ones that come back F0, F1, you know, fibroscan, six or less, I would say just keep an eye on them, tell them to lose weight, and they probably just have fatty liver. Yeah, so, so FibroSure is a little bit less valuable. There has been studies to try and validate it. Um, it's a little less clear how valuable it is unless it's advanced disease because of other metabolic changes that occur in fatty liver. Like the beta globulins tend to be high, which falsely give you a higher rate. Oh, if it comes back normal, you're in pretty good shape. Yes. That's it. Thank you. Appreciate your time.